Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Sinead O'Carroll, and this week, what are the government's plans for direct provision? Before we get into that, I wanted to say thank you to Christine and Nikki, who took over presenting duties over the last few weeks. I really loved being a listener of their episodes, but I am glad to be back today and we really have an important topic. Every day in different parts of the world, war, hate and persecution drives people from their homes sometimes displaced within their own countries, sometimes fleeing their borders seeking asylum. Ireland's system for offering international protection to non-citizens in these situations hasn't changed for 22 years, but this government has promised to end direct provision. The Minister with Responsibility, the Green Party's Roderick O'Gorman, has published his white paper on how the government believes this could be achieved and what they plan to do to go about it. Currently, there are over 7,000 people living in direct provision centres across the country. This plan, though, doesn't just affect them. It also affects the people who will land on our shores because of what is happening on their own doorsteps. How is it going to differ from the current system? Is it feasible? Is it better? To talk about these things, I'm joined by Conal Thomas, who has done an incredible amount of in-depth reporting on direct provision for the journal, and Nick Henderson, CEO of the Irish Refugee Council. Earlier, I was joined by Ola Mustafa, a mother and student living in a direct provision centre, to discuss her reaction to the white paper. I began by asking her to tell us a little about herself. My name is Owodun uh, Mustafa, and I'm popularly known as Ola. And I'm a mom of three, I'm an asylum seeker, and I've been in the country for nearly seven years now. I'm currently studying for a master's degree uh, for gender globalization and rights at NUI Galway and I'm also running a second degree at um, with Equal Ireland. I am an aspiring writer and I am the founder of Balihonis Inclusion Project which is a support group for asylum seekers. Uh, yeah that's that's basically me. And you're obviously still going through the system and uh, you're still waiting for a, a decision? Yes I am I am yeah. And what are the conditions like where you are now? What are your living conditions like? Um, I live in the old convent in Balhonis. Uh, well, I, I don't like using that word, fortunately, but it happens to be a self-catering um, a direct provision center, which means you have your own, you have your own space where you, can, where you can cook your food and where you have all the um, facilities that you need. Um, for instance, the, for laundry, and things like that, you have them in your houses. And so the living condition here is uh, pretty much, um, it's, it's good. And the service delivery here is quite, uh, it's quite uh, grand, if I, if I may put it that way. And the, the management, don't, they don't run the center like it's, uh, like it's a direct provision center. It's, they run it more like it's a, it's a family center, which makes it more livable. Oh, you've said there that your the, the conditions in your center are quite good. But what about in other centers? And obviously, you, you are part of a support group. What are the kinds of things you hear that are problematic in other places? These are these are some of the things that I I, I don't like talking about. You know, I've visited quite uh, a lot of my friends in other centers, and I see I see the living conditions there. I there was one time I went to visit someone. You know, those centers they don't let you in in the room, but one way or the other, you 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 gain access to, 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 to the room. And I wanted to use the bathroom and there were there are four ladies in that room and all four of them had potties in the room. So they couldn't use the bathroom. They, they, they couldn't use the toilet. Like it's a, it's a communal uh, toilet, but it's meant for, meant for the four of them. So they would, they would use the potty and then turn in 
the, the, whatever it is, the content into the toilet and then flush. It was so disgusting, you know. And these are the things that that, that we don't uh, highlight when when we're talking about direct pollution. People think uh, these people are just making noise. They should be grateful for for what they have. Of course, we are grateful for the opportunity. We are, we are grateful for the safety and the stability that we found so far. What we are not grateful for is the fact that we we're not treated as humans. We are not given this the, the, the equal rights, you know, to have a full um, to exercise our our, our full rights, you know. Uh, you hear people who say, I've been here for five years and I, I live in a center where we still queue for food. My children have not tasted my food before. It's it, it's very uh, heartbreaking, you know. As parents, you even want to teach your children how to how to cook or how to, you know, all, all those kind of things. But you can't. You don't have access to all those things, which is which is very is very heartbreaking. What has your opinion been of the proposed changes to the direct provision system? I would say uh, the white paper is, is quite ambitious. I've gone through it, and I don't expect anyone to have read the entire 170 something pages. But I I kind of read from page 59 to 64, which uh, piqued uh, my, my interest the more. You know, some of them is uh, quite uh, you know humane, and it is it's been a long time coming. It should have happened earlier than now, and some of them are recognizing um, diversity. And so it's stated in that paper that there would be pathways for people who identify as LGBTQ and older people, uh, people with disabilities. And it also uh, recognized uh, the religious rights and, and cultural supports for people, which is a very uh, welcome development. And it also recognized uh, uh, that there should be some kind of a support for uh, people who are being uh, victims of domestic violence, uh, sexual violence, or gender-based violence. Because believe me or not, we've heard people in the past who said, I went for interview, and you know the person that interviewed me said, I don't look like somebody who, who was a victim of do, uh, domestic violence. Or uh, domestic violence is not, not a basis for, for me to seek asylum, which is it's very demeaning. And very degrading. You don't know people's. Uh, you don't know people's precedents. You don't know. You don't know their personal circumstances. And according to the law, it is left for the applicant to prove that their lives are in danger, and that's why they left. It is not. It's not in your place to 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 you know treat them like they are they are guilty until until proven um, innocent. Um, other aspect of the white paper that I find quite um, interesting and. It would be a very, uh, it would be a major win if they are actually, you know, actualized and not just put uh, on paper for us to see. Would be uh, the right to work and driver's license and people being able to open accounts. And also, it also identified the need for um, training the staff at the at the IPO, which is which has should have been done a long time ago. You know, people. People who have no idea of how the system is, where applicants are coming from, shouldn't shouldn't be made to interview people. So things that would sound like um, things that would sound like a taboo to somebody that is interviewing me is actually my my reality. It's my lived experience. So people should be trained in that aspect. I think that's uh, these are very 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 uh, you know ambitious and would be would go a long way to support us if they are if they're actually put in place and not just you know. Not just a, a partial or a pseudo success like we 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 saw with the uh, McMahon report.
And just for our listeners, the IPO you mentioned there is the International Protection Office, which is part of the Immigration Service Delivery, and they examine and process asylum applications. But Olia said earlier that your living conditions are quite good compared to those who are in emergency accommodation or other centres around the country. Is there enough in this white paper that makes you happy that these conditions will change for people? Um, would I use the word happy? I would just say I'm, I'm, I'm quite optimistic, you know. But then at the end of the day, the white paper says there would be phase one and phase two. So the phase one will have people living in, um, living in reception areas for, for four months uh, while waiting for a first instance decision. And then they will then transition to phase two, which is uh, the independent um, living arrangement. But what happens when people get, um, when they get unfavorable first instance decision? Would they still be be able to transition to um to independent living, or would they still be be, be made to to live in those in those uh, reception areas? However, the the white paper states that the reception areas would be you know established in such a way that people would be allowed will be supported to live independently. So you have your own privacy, as opposed to the crowded uh, spaces that that we used to have in in Balseskin and other places that are used for. For, uh, for the reception areas, which is a very welcome development. Uh, the only question would be, how are people going to be able to challenge government when they are made to live in uh, those reception areas for more than the four months that, that uh, it is uh, stipulated on, on the white paper? And that was Ola Mustafa speaking to me earlier. And Colin, I wanted to turn to you first and ask about this overhaul. How significant are the proposed changes? I would describe them as very significant, I suppose. Uh, we've been with threat provision now for 22 years, and this really is the first major overhaul of the system we've seen. There have been changes and improvements made along the way, but this is the first time there's been, a, I suppose, a whole of government approach to um, overhauling or ending the system of uh, accommodating asylum seekers in Ireland, Sinead. We talked to Ola earlier, but just in a more general sense, um, can you talk us through what happens to someone currently? So before getting into the proposed new system, what happens to cur- someone currently seeking asylum in Ireland from the moment they arrive on our shores? Um, what happens next with their application? So generally what will happen is when a person arrives seeking international protection, they'll go to the International Protection Office in Main Street. And there they'll make their their claim or their declaration that they'd like to apply for international protection and they will be given an initial interview and they'll be handed a questionnaire. It's an extensive questionnaire to be filled out. I think I believe it's within about 20 to 28 days and, and then return to officials. And from there, they'll be taken on a bus essentially to Balseskin Reception Centre in Finglas. And that is where they're given an initial medical health screening. And then you could stay in Balseskin for a number of days or weeks, in some case months, but generally you'll then be sent to a direct provision centre, one of 39 located around the country, um, or it could be, as has been the case the last two, two and a half years, an emergency centre, a hotel or B&B, which has obviously been widely criticised on top of the existing system itself. Um, but part of the, the, the criticism, obviously, of direct provision is the length of time people spend within the system. And one of the key things that we'll be looking to under this new system is that the length of time it takes to process applications for international protection. I think it's currently at about 17 months on average, which is, you know, some people will end up spending years in the system and if it's 
denied, then they can make one appeal. And then as a last case, I suppose they can appeal to the minister themselves, in this case, Helen McEntee, to, to allow them to remain in Ireland. If, if you get that far and it's refused, then a deportation order will be issued. Nick, I, I mentioned there that Conal has been immersed in this for many years, but 22 years, I probably won't give away much, Conal. You you definitely weren't a reporter at that stage yet. Um, so Nick, can you take us back to when direct provision was first introduced? What was the thinking behind it and what was it actually like at first? Yeah, so it was introduced in April 2000, 10th of April 2000. The background to its introduction was that there was an increase in the number of people seeking protection in Ireland, and that was reflected in an increase across the European Union. The government felt that they were struggling to accommodate people uh, in the, the manner that they had so far been doing, which was that people would be accommodated in an induction centre, and then after that period, people would move to the private rented sector and they would be given a supplementary rent allowance. For better or for worse, that system pre-direct provision was struggling. The government then took the step to introduce what was called direct provision. And it was backed up, only really backed up by two social welfare circulars. On that, just to stop you there for a second, what do you mean by a circular, just for our audience, that it was backed up by a circular? I suppose, well, the key thing was that it was never placed into on a statutory footing. Reception conditions, in other words, accommodation for people seeking asylum, were only ever placed on a statutory footing in July 2018, when Ireland took the step of implementing a piece of European Union law called the Reception Conditions Directive, which interestingly just doesn't actually use the phrase direct provision, it uses the phrase reception conditions. So it has been a weakness of the system for the 22 year period that it there was never anything in law. Um, so it made it difficult for people in the process themselves, people living in it, and also advocates on their behalf to say where and how a, a particular law was being broken. In terms of how it was when it was created and the types of conditions, well, unfortunately, they were bad from the beginning. Um, it wasn't as if it's a system that started well and deteriorated. There were always embedded and endemic problems within it. And have the problems changed? So those problems that were evident to you in the first 18 months, are they the same problems that prompted this overhaul or are there additional ones? No, there's been problems that have remained throughout. It's a system that isolates people. It takes away independence. It is a system that has had systematic issues around uh, the vast majority of people don't have the ability to cook for themselves. It's a system that has, in a word, segregated people. It puts people in accommodation, often on the edge of our communities, in a congregated setting, and makes them really identifiable to the rest of the community, which causes all sorts of problems around stigma and racism. There have been trends and issues that have emerged over time, uh, and Conal's done a huge amount of reporting on this in terms of emergency accommodation, which was a new phenomenon that uh, occurred in 2017, 2018, around, it's not really direct provision accommodation, it's just the procurement of hotels and B&Bs for people to stay in because mainstream direct provision centres were full. So to answer your question, there's there's been systematic issues that have always been there, but over time, new issues have emerged. 
Colin, because of some of the issues that Nick has raised there, the Day Commission was set up and it is at the core of this new proposal. Can you talk us through what it was and um, what it did? So I suppose a lot of what we're seeing in the white paper was uh, predated by a few months by the um, expert advisory group. It was chaired by the secretary, former secretary general of the European Commission, um, Dr. Catherine Day. And I suppose it was tasked with looking at every aspect of the system and recommending a series of steps to government where it could improve or overhaul or indeed end the system itself. Remember, I use the word end because it's something that Minister Rodrigo Gorman himself has consistently said since taking office that he wants to end this system, not just improve it or overhaul it. So the expert advisory group, um, which consulted with a number of NGOs, I believe the, the, the Refugee Council included, drew up a series of, of recommendations and published its report in October. And, and just to maybe take you through a few of those headline recommendations, um, the group said that asylum seekers uh, living in direct provision for more than two years by the end of last year, 2020, should be allowed to remain in Ireland for five years. Um, it's sort of like a once-off amnesty, as it were. This, this they said, would be obviously fair in as much as people had spent so much time in this, this system and also then would have perhaps arguably really clear the backlog. The, the group also recommended, I suppose, that like in, in addition to the, the one-off grant, there should be increased access to the labour labor market. The group recommended that the current system should be ended and replaced by a three-stage system of state-run accommodations by mid-2023. And I suppose we can, we can kind of see where the government almost perhaps cherry-picked from this expert advisory group when we go into a bit more detail on the white paper. The group had, had recommended, I suppose, that, as I say, people provided a, a accommodation in state-owned centres rather than privately run centres for three months before moving to their own door, own key accommodation, as well as, in addition to that, it said that you know, there should be a payment similar to the housing assistance scheme should be made available, uh, as well as a weekly allowance greater than the €38.80 that is currently available to people living in the system. Yeah, so let's get into the white paper. So this is the blueprint for how uh, the new system should work. What's in it? Just to start off, the main kind of thrust of it, I suppose, the, the main idea behind the white paper is that international protection applicants will basically spend no more than four months in state-owned centres, essentially. Now, these centres will be state-owned, they'll be built by the state, and they'll be not-for-profit. So essentially, you're taking it out of the hands of private companies and private contractors and moving it into to state-owned accommodation, where people will spend four months from when they make their application. After that point, the plan is, and this is it's, the, the plan is laid out, I suppose, under two phases. The government plans to set up this new, what, it, what it's calling an international protection support service, to be in place by 2024. Um, we can maybe get into a little bit of detail of how ambitious that will be later on. And the plan is to deliver it in two phases. Phase one will involve identifying locations for state-run reception centres, integration centres, and these will be made up of own-door accommodation and they'll be spread throughout the country. And would they be different to the current ones, like the ones that we, we well know, like Mosny? Absolutely, yeah. As I understand it, and the government's plan is to build these centres itself. There'll be six of them spread throughout the country. The, there, there's a plan to have, I think it's around no more than about 300 capacity in each of these state-run centres. Now, I question how feasible that's really going to be. Within those six state-run centres, there'll be wraparound services in place for when a person makes their application. I suppose a key part of this that... Uh, you know, both the Refugee Council and NASC and the Movement of Asylum Seekers in Ireland have been pushing for is for proper vulnerability assessments. Nick mentioned the 2018 Reception Conditions Directive. Within that directive, there's a requirement to provide people with vulnerability assessments who enter the system. Now, that simply hasn't been done. And the fact that we adopted 
the EU directive in July 2018 and made it transposed into our own law means we've basically been breaking our own law on that front for the last two and a half years. So that's that's phase one of that. The emphasis, the government says, is on a sort of person-centred approach to support people to integrate into local communities. Now, it's obviously quite an ambitious roadmap, but maybe just to talk through a little bit more, the idea after sort of phase one of the four months in a, in a state-run centre, state-owned centre, is to follow it up with a blend of not-for-profit housing models. Now, this was something the Refugee Council had looked at about a month or two before it drew up a report looking at how exactly we can move people out of this institutionalized system into their own accommodation and what types of accommodation we need to look at. There's the whole thing on one side of speeding up processing times, but in essence as well, this is the huge issue of this is about the accommodation itself and how we're going to deliver that. So the plan as the government sees it is to use a mix of both urban renewal and community hosting schemes, but the vast majority of people, it intends at least, will be moved into their own accommodation and this will be delivered through approved housing bodies. And under this phase two, the plan is that all accommodation will be owned or self-contained houses or for apartments or families. It's planned that single people are going to be housed in either own door or own room accommodation scheme and a distribution scheme to work out how that's going to be delivered is currently being agreed with local authority um, chief executives to deliver this plan. Sticking with the broad strokes, Nick, rather than getting into what's realistic and, and too ambitious at the moment, is this the type of change that you want to see in the system? Is this the type of detail that you wanted to have in the white paper? Yes, it is. Yeah, we welcomed the white paper when it was published on Friday. There were a lot of good things in it. Uh, the I think it locks in an all-of-government approach. One of the criticisms of the system historically has been that it's just purely rested on the Department of Justice, who haven't done that well. It places the vulnerability assessment at the centre of the system, which, while a requirement in law, so it, we shouldn't be celebrating the fact that they're doing it, is it's essential. It takes on the streams of accommodation that we've suggested. I would be sceptical about the idea of uh, hosting. I think that, would, that needs more detail and there's potentially several traps within that system. It has an in, a focus on integration from day one, which is hugely important. This is an idea that the Scots have done well, which is that we allow people seeking protection to integrate into Ireland from the moment that they make their asylum application, as opposed to the moment they get their deci a decision on their, their application for protection. So there's lots of good things in it. However, there are weaknesses in it. And I think the crucial weakness is the idea that the white paper doesn't take forward the recommendation of the advisory group that people in the system for more than two years be offered permission to remain. And the advisory group made that recommendation because it was felt, and we were members of that group along with NASC and Massey, the advisory group felt that was important to reset the system. Creating a new type of accommodation and a new system with nearly 7,000 people in it is a completely dis different task and a much more difficult task than creating a new system with say, only 2,000 or 3,000 people in it. How did we get to a situation that there's 7,000 people? Um, why is the length of stay so long? And can that be addressed through this white paper? That's the key question. And I'm not sure if it can. And if you look at the white paper, I think you can almost trace which government department was responsible for uh, 
different parts of it, and, and that's quite obvious in some ways. Many of the recommendations that are relevant to the Department of Justice that the advisory group made back in October don't seem to have been taken forward in full. There's the permission to remain point that I've just made. There's also the increasing the resources of the Legal Aid Board and increasing an investment in legal aid generally and provision of legal advice to people seeking asylum. Things like that don't seem to have been taken forward. We've got to a situation where there's nearly 7,000 people for various reasons. The, a crucial issue is the ongoing delays at the International Protection Office, which is the first instance decision-making body in Ireland. As Connell said, it's currently, if you claimed asylum today, you probably wouldn't get uh, a decision on your application for 18 months. That's a huge amount of time, and it, it's a long way from the six months that the advisory group recommended in October that someone should have to wait for a decision on their application. Why did they take so long? What what's what are they doing in that 18 months? Are they just waiting at the back of a queue or like what's happening to people at the front of the queue? So I was speaking to our managing solicitor yesterday and she was assisting somebody who was interviewed a year ago today. So the interview has taken place, but that person still hasn't got a decision. Um, there's several things going on. One, the pandemic has frozen interviews. So the International Prote Protection Office did open up for interviews during level three, but in level five, they are not undertaking interviews. Then more generally, and, and looking a little further back, there is basically a ball and chain around the decision-making process. And that's the, that's when we move from the Refugee Act of 1996 to the new law that dictates how asylum applications will be considered, which is the International Protection Act. And all many cases at different stages of the process were brought from the old system to the new, and they, those cases started again. And the system really hasn't ever recovered. So there's always been approximately 4,500, I think now it's something like 3,500 3, cases that have been in at the International Protection Office. So cases may be being decided. It's not as if it's the same number of ca same cases. They are gradually working through them, but the backlog remains. And until that backlog can be eliminated, I think it's going to be difficult to, to properly introduce new forms of accommodation. I don't want to get bogged down too much in, in to keep asking you questions about the justice process, but it is a major bottleneck and it is something that we hear back all the time. Well, if if the decisions were made quicker and if the appeals um, didn't last as long, well, then there wouldn't be as many people in direct provision. What is the resource problem that they can't get through that backlog? I, like I'm thinking here of when we had the passport disaster a few years ago, it was resourced and now the passport system is incredibly efficient. Um, what are the things that need to be resourced? Is it people with legal expertise? What are, who are the decision makers that there needs to be more of? Yeah, it's quite, it's the various things that could be done. Firstly, refugee decision making is is arguably one of the most important functions of a of a modern democracy. We're making decisions about whether people should will be returned to persecution or not. So it's a it's an occupation that we should value. And I'm not quite sure that's I don't think it's happening at the moment. There has been quite high turnover at the International Protection Office, staff turnover at the International Protection Office. They have tried to bring in a panel 
of part-time decision makers, that's worked to, to an extent. Then there is the issue of the actual applications that people are making a decision on. We've practiced in our law center something called early legal advice, which when we talk to people is, is quite simple, but it's the idea of giving people uh, quite intensive assistance at the beginning of their asylum application rather at the end. So when decision makers do get a, a file, everything is covered. There's a personal statement that explains the application in the person's own words, the supporting evidence, there's representations, and a decision maker can take a, a, a nearly global decision on the application, whether the person is a refugee or not. At the moment, many applications in our experience uh, are not being properly prepared because the Legal Aid Board's budget does not allow for that. They allow for something like two hours pre-decision. And the Catherine Day Advisory Group report recommended an increase of legal aid, and that's not been uh, reflected as far as I can see, uh, certainly not immediately in, in the white paper. I think that explains well, and, and I, as I said, I didn't want to get bogged down in it, but it, it is something that I wanted to, to learn about here today as well. Connell, I wanted to move on to the, the sticky question of cost and money next. Um, but let's look at the current situation. And it's something, again, that we've done a lot of reporting on in the journal and that you have done a lot of reporting on. How much money are currently companies and individuals making off the for-profit direct provision system? Since the system was introduced, over 1.3 billion euro has been paid to private contractors. A number of these private contractors, well, it's probably worth pointing out, have been in operation of these systems as in the centres since nearly the very beginning. So they've profited massively. The last year we saw, I suppose, a sharp increase in providing um, emergency beds. And this this started, as, as Nick was saying, I suppose, in, in late September. Um, and it, it resulted essentially in the state spending on accommodation for direct provision by more than two thirds to 129 million last year. That's an increase of 51.4 million from the year previous. And it's probably worth just adding to that, that into this mix of, of the, 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 the current contracts that are in place with what you might call the permanent direct provision centers. In addition to that, on an ad hoc basis, uh, the state through the Justice Department initially has had to contract private hotels and B&Bs. And it costs about three times as much, I believe it is, yes, yeah, three times as much to, to accommodate people in, in these centres. It's about 30, 35 euro a night for, for, I suppose, food and board, if you want to call it, in a permanent threat provision centre, and there's about 39 of them. And then in emergency centres, the department or the state is paying about 100 euro per head. So you can obviously, it's an incredibly costly, inefficient uh, system. And, and the other thing I might actually just add, Sinead, is, is that we talk about a lot, a lot about transparency within direct provision and and the kind of the secrecy around it. And it's only in recent years through the work of NGOs like the Refugee Council and and some reporting and and mainly I would I'd say grassroots organisation of bringing this to the fore that there's been a secrecy around it. I mean, I, I could be wrong, and Nick may may correct me, but in in my years of reporting on this, I've never once seen a contract with the direct provision centre. Uh, it's net, not one has ever been released. Um, I, I've FOI'd them many times, and, and the, the state has refused to. So, we, in a sense, we get the we get the costings every two years, but we actually have no real breakdown of how much this is actually costing on on a daily or weekly or monthly basis. We were able to get a sense early in the the days of emergency accommodation because because the state had to be more transparent. But it pretty rapidly shut its doors on that front too and stopped releasing information to me. Um, but I suppose if, if we can then maybe touch it a little bit then on the white paper, what that proposes. Well, as I, as I mentioned, there's two phases. It's estimated that phase one, and this is the, the 
the, I suppose, location and building of these state-owned accommodation, it's, it's and, and of course the supports that, that go with that, that's estimated to cost about 281 million. Phase two will cost 391 million. Now, that's obviously the approved housing bodies building accommodation for people to live in. Um, so you look at it and you think, okay, that's, you know, about 600 million euro. But if you look and you think that private contractors over 22 years have been paid more than 1.3 billion euro. Well, it would seem to be the right approach to maybe certainly try this, if not, and, and see how it goes um, in terms of a, a, a money point of view, you know? Yeah, 2024 is the is the deadline, but obviously a lot can change in politics. Is this government bound to, to make these changes? And what happens if there's an election? No, is the short answer. To both. <laughs> yeah, uh, this really is it. And this is one of the, the, the main criticisms, I suppose, that some people had when the white paper came out was in particular in relation to the to the phase one. Um, this, as it were, commitment to build six accommodation, state-owned accommodation centres and, and have people there for no longer than four months. This isn't legislated for. Um, so in its essence, the government isn't bound to its own plan in this regard. So that's one issue. And yeah, as you say, what happens if a new government comes in? I I mean, there are obviously opposition parties have very even more vocally opposed to dread provision than the current government parties. But no, there, there's absolutely no guarantees that this plan will come off other than there is and has been a continued public urge and support. And as I mentioned, a grassroots campaign that has grown and grown to end this system. You know, but 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 we'll see over I suppose the coming years whether it's going to be change, reform, overhaul or end and where where the government will ultimately land on that. Nick, this white paper has a lot of big plans about building accommodation. And one issue, obviously, that's coming up is the backdrop of the housing crisis. Is the approach taken here the correct one in terms of integration? Yeah, I think there's several things going on and it's going to require a lot of leadership uh, throughout the, the four years. Um, just on the, the housing crisis point, I think there's several things that the white paper does that may assist in this regard. Firstly, it, it states that there will be separate financing. So the financing won't draw down from existing housing policy financing. It recommends a strands approach, which we also would agree with. And it's something that we recommended in our January report. Um, so this is simply the idea that you try and create as many different streams of accommodation at one time to try and open up areas of supply that may not already be drawn down on. When we worked and spoke to with housing experts and spoke to a lot of housing experts over the last three months for our report, the thing that they jumped immediately to, which it surprised me in some ways, was the idea of community and regeneration initiatives. I would have doubts, as I say, about the idea of the rent-a-room scheme style thing that's in the white paper. But I do think there's a lot of potential, in, if done well, in regeneration. Um, then there is the idea of numbers in that there is a risk that we think that it's we, we're getting 7,000 people claiming asylum each year. or I, I, That's not going to happen. Only 1,600 people claimed asylum in 2020 because of the pandemic. It's going to take a while for those numbers to increase. So that makes it all the more important that we clear the backlog and then ultimately that we may not find that well and the, the advisory group says this that the number of households that we're seeking to accommodate isn't actually that great also if you can reduce the time 
that somebody is in the protection process, then you might have greater turnover in terms of the, the supply that you do identify. But as the report says, you do have to bleed this in over a period of time um, and up until 2024, 2025, possibly. Um, so it will take time. Then I think going back to your previous point around political will, I do think that there's a a Rubicon's been crossed in, in the last couple of years. There's been multiple reports, IREC, the Oroptus Justice Committee, the committee, to, the UN Committee on Ending Racial uh, Discrimination. The voices of people seeking asylum have become so resonant and defiant over the last couple of years that I, I don't think we can go back to a system where a government would say, actually, we're going to just perpetuate the current system. Just a couple of quick fire questions on the, on the back of a couple of things you've said there. Um, can you just explain the rent a room um, portion of the white paper that you mentioned? Yeah, so this would be the idea that particularly for single people, and there are, the, I think the majority of people in the protection process are single, could avail of some sort of rent a room scheme. We would have doubts about whether that is practically possible, certainly whether it could be scaled at all. Uh, it would be involve, say, somebody who has a spare room, giving it to somebody in the asylum process for a period of time and possibly being reimbursed for that. I think we have to be very careful of anything that perpetuate, perpetuates or takes away people's agency. And I worry that whether or not somebody's spare room is an appropriate place for people to, 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 to be in while they are, when they're in a very difficult moment in their life and in a vulnerable situation. So that's what it seems to get at. I think there is, as I say, and it, the white paper may need more detail on this or further exploration as to the difference between something like that and then the difference between, say, if a community has vacant properties that they could be funded to overhaul and have people living in them for a period of time. So that's what I think it tries to do. Yeah, you don't you don't want a college digs lottery style system. And then the other question, Nick, I just want to pick up on there. Um, you said 1,600 uh, people came seeking protection during 2020, which was obviously majority pandemic time. Um, is there projections for 2021 that are different now than the 7,000 taking into account the pandemic? Yeah, I haven't seen the figures yet for January and February, but the number of people who claimed asylum in December, I think was 160, which is slightly more than I would have imagined. But I do anticipate that the numbers of people applying for protection will be for the foreseeable future, fewer than expected. In 2019, 4,600 people claimed asylum, uh, then deep going down to 1,600 in 2020. So for this, but for the foreseeable future, I, I would anticipate it to be in the region of 1,500 to 2,000 maybe. Uh, it's not really spoken about, um, and, and we mentioned it in, in our report in the summer, uh, talking about direct provision in the pandemic, that it's one of the consequences of the global pandemic is that people have struggled to move um, and travel to, to when fleeing persecution. I think that that is only going to continue. I think the emphasis on non-essential travel, 
things like hotel quarantining, the removal of visa-free travel will make it all the more harder for people to travel to when fleeing persecution. Yeah, so there's, there's even more global conversations to be had on, on the back of that. But we'll leave it there and thank you for unpacking. Uh, obviously, there's a lot in, in that white paper and there's a lot in the, the 22 years as well um, to look at it when it comes to direct vision. So thanks so much to Conal and thanks, Nick. Thank you. Thanks very much, Sinead. Thank you for listening to The Explainer and a big thank you to Ola, Nick and Conal for their work. I'm delighted to be back in the host chair this week, but check out Nikki and Christine's presenting feats over the last few weeks in our back catalogue. There's some really good stuff there on vaccines and Brexit. And as I said, I really enjoyed being a listener of them. This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by producers Aoife Barry and Nikki Ryan. If you're enjoying the episodes, please leave us a review and rating wherever you listen. And more importantly, share with a friend who you think will enjoy them. Thank you and catch you next time.